1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Coming up on today's episode, the future king is in his counting house, counting out his money. Does Prince Charles need to tidy up his finances to stop ending up on the front of the Sunday Times? Uh, We'll take a look at the Prince of Wales, his finances, the donors who get too close to him, and what all this means for the future of the monarchy with Gabriel Pogwender and Roy from the Sunday Times. Before that, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. Normally it's Libby Rachel, but no Rachel Sylvester today. So today we've got Libby Purvis and Patrick Kidd. Good to have you both here. I suppose we should start with uh, the story that everyone's talking about in Westminster. Um, Store on the front of the Times today, Tory rebels saying Boris Johnson's handling of claims the Conservative whip uh, drunkenly groped two men has bolstered their efforts to oust him. I mean, you also wonder how many bolsterings of efforts to oust him there need to be before he's actually ousted. Or is this just wishful thinking on the part of rebels, do you think, Libby?
2: Well, I have defaced this programme before with my very stupid former prediction that Boris himself would jump for freedom months ago. Uh, freedom, big bucks on the lecture circuit. He'd say, I led my land through a pandemic and then I succumbed and now I need a private life. And I was completely wrong. He is holding on like a limpet. I really can hardly understand it as a fellow human being, and uh, unless it's, he's just enjoying the international stuff so much. But I'm afraid the Parliamentary Tory party is going to have to grow a pair and take action because his unpopularity across the country is really quite staggering now. It's getting to sort of beyond Thatcher levels, if you remember what it was like, you know, when the entire country was behaving like a, a child trying to escape a domineering mother under Mrs. Thatcher as she then was. But I think his unpopularity is now even greater and they're not going to win another election with him. And you know, it's coming up in a year or so.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, Patrick. The um the disconnect between uh, conservative MPs and even Number Ten, who insist that Boris Johnson's a great election. I mean, you know, if we separate for a moment what we might think, just if you through pure cynical self interest and self preservation, if you were a Conservative MP right now looking at Boris Johnson's uh poll polling, you know, sixty percent say he should uh, stand down, sixty five percent say he's incompetent, seventy four percent say he's untrustworthy. Uh, 55% say he's weak, 56% say he's dislikable, 63% say he's indecisive, 69% say he's doing the job of Prime Minister badly. And yet, they sort of convince him that this idea is the Heineken politician who can reach parts of the country that others can't. I mean, it's it's true. He's managed to convince whole swathes of traditionally Tory areas um, that he's not up to it.
3: Yes, well, I thought one of the, the, the more silly claims in deputy PMQs last week was, was Dominic Raab telling Angela Rayner that the big difference between us is we're united behind our leader and you want to get rid of yours. I thought there's not... I've detected a huge <laughs> anti-Kirce. They may think Keir Starmer's a bit dull, but I don't think they're actively trying to get rid of him, as 148 Tory MPs did. Um, but, I mean, there are, there are some who would think that, that that Boris Johnson has to lose in an election that he has to um, be rejected by the electorate. Otherwise, even if he goes, he will then just say, oh, it's the ghastly media and it's traitors in my party. They got rid of me. And I think that's also why there's not been a direct move against him by the the would-be future prime ministers, because they think actually it's now, it's got to the point where, where even a change of leader isn't going to swing the election. So let's let him wear it, um, if, if you like. They'd probably be quite keen on an early election to get it out of the way. But, you know, the greased piglet, as it's been called, wriggles through. Um, I'm inclined to agree with Libby. I think at some point he'll go just because he wants the money to pay for however many children he has by then. Um, But uh, I wonder how many more sex scandals are to come, uh, because it seems every week seems to bring a new one.
1: Do you think, uh, Libby, um, there are often parallels drawn with uh, the 1990s that actually... We are now. I mean, it's, the, the the single biggest thing that was going to stop the Tories winning in twenty twenty four would have been the fact they've been in power in one form or another for fourteen years. I mean, that 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 fact alone is quite a hurdle to overcome. Um, do you think that there's just a sense of inevitability now that uh, nobody, somebody thinks something must be done, but not yet, and probably by someone other than me. And that just means that actually Boris Johnson will survive, he will lead him into the next election, and actually, based on current polling, we'll probably end up with a totally indecisive mess of a result.
2: I think that could certainly happen, but what fascinates me about the parliamentary party is the... There must be a sense in some of them, and I mean, there's some of them expressed it, a sense of shame, a sense that this is not the party we wanted to belong to. This is not the party that we joined. This is not what we believed in, Uh because there are, I mean, you know, uh, I'm sorry to apologize to any serious Guardian readers listening. But, you know, there are good conservatives. You know, there are people who have strong principles. And I think the embarrassment of what's going on now um, you know, the, uh, not just the, the actual misdeeds, but the evasions, you know, from the parties and the sleaze and everything else. It must really hurt. And I do feel for people. I, and I, I wish that, that more of them would just sort of say, look, actually enough, you know, and choose a new leader who has at least a better record and who believes in the things that they do. But I, I don't see enough sign of that really.
1: Um, Patrick, I remember uh, our colleague Hugo um, Rifkin uh, had this very good line, at the height of Brexit uh, rouse. The problem with Brexit was that for the Tory party it was so off-brand, sort of blowing everything up in the hope of something exciting happening. It was the opposite of Mm. sort of conservatives, conserving things, leaving things alone, you know, incremental change here and there. And um, actually everything that's happened really under Boris Johnson has been off-brand, you know, whether it's the sleaze stuff, the money stuff the uh breaking the rules the the you know not being entirely truthful about things all of that is just it's just not very conservative is it
3: no and i mean traditionally they they have won success by by being competent and and just being trusted to to get on with with generally trying to make people's lives better and I think there's no indication of that going to happen. They talk sort of aspirationally about levelling up and things like that, but there's, there's no policy, there's no energy, and this happens with governments after after a long period in office, of course, and it happened in the 90s, and John Major was a, a different sort of Prime Minister to Boris Johnson, but nonetheless uh, <clears throat> a tired government ran out of ideas until, you know, the Cones hotline became the totemic policy. Uh, we haven't even got a cones hotline, <laughs> um, and, and so they, they they need a spell in the wilderness to revive and to get idea and try and work out why they want to be in government beyond just being in government beyond preservation.
2: But this is absurd, isn't it? Really, why? How? How? Why? Why should they get tired? I mean, yes, I agree. I remember that that desperate weariness uh, you know when when we all sort of flung our arms around tony blair with little squeaks of relief uh, but um you know th- there is no reason a party should be able to refresh itself and have people and ideas coming up from the bottom and and um you know i don't know why this has to happen is it is it complacency is it just being an mp for so long that you forget that you're not invincible
1: it's a good question to which I don't totally know the answer. But, but actually, the most striking thing is actually the total lack of ideas. From you know, you're right, Patrick. There is no, there's no Cones Hotline this morning. They're announcing something on childcare, where the uh, the minister, Will Quince, has been going around saying it's not going to make a huge difference. He's, he was trying to make a virtue of not doing anything very big. Um, you know, baby steps. He said, excuse me the pun, uh, for talking about childcare. But you know. This is now 14 years of the government. They, they can't really do it, even despite having a, massive, having a massive majority. Anyway, Let's move on. Let's move on. I want to talk about this. Um, uh, let's talk about the Isle of Wight. Uh. Uh, there's a great story in The Times today. They've been looking at the Office of National Statistics uh, figures from the census. And the population in the Isle of Wight, aged 65 and over... Rose by twenty five percent between twenty eleven and twenty twenty one is rising by bigger than anywhere else. Uh, uh, um, the numbers aged twenty twenty four fell by thirteen percent, and it's sort of partly because it's on an island. I suppose it's sort of even more pronounced. But um, this, it, there will come a point where presumably there won't be anyone left on the Isle of Wight, Libby.
2: Well, yes, I mean, it, it's, it's a good joke, the whole business of the ageing of the Isle of Wight and I think if you could pick on a lot of rural areas where the same kind of thing happens I mean, North Norfolk, for instance if you knock out the second homers and so on, is like that. But I would just like to point out that just over the water at Leon Solent, there is my young nephew and his young wife, both uh, advanced, go-getting young people so it, it's, it's not far away to find the young. But I do get quite upset. I speak as one of the guilty oldies. Um, I I rejoice in a proper mix in every part of the country. You know, when there are young children living down our lane, which there are, I'm absolutely delighted. Uh, And I wish the birth rate wasn't declining, and I wish that we weren't using up so many family-sized houses when there are just two people um, in them, uh, and levelling up matters, and the whole Dick Whittington thing of you've got to go to London to get anywhere, that's gone too far as well. I, I think there is a huge problem of ageing Britain, and the, the sort of the Isle of Wight uh, joke, as it were, is um, is, is a quite a nice little thing to point us in that direction.
1: But it's... It, um, Patrick, this is levelling up in action, isn't it? Or not in action, as it may be. That If you... Young and you grew up in somewhere like the Isle of Wight, and we actually, we a couple of weeks ago, we were talking to um some of the Channel Islands, and they've all got this problem. The young people leave for the mainland. House prices are going up. They're all being driven up by
3: wealthy
2: yeah.
1: pensioners. Well, well that's, uh, that's, it's, not, it's that's also... not
2: leveling up. That's leveling down. Exactly I right, mean, that's, yeah, yeah. that's yeah.
3: Well, it's also a sign of a place becoming desirable. So, so yeah. pensioners want to move to the Isle of Wight because it's a nice lifestyle. They get the beaches, the climate, um, nice pubs and stuff like that. Um And because they do that bringing in their wealth, that means the price of the properties go up, so therefore the young people have to leave because they can't afford the properties um and, and, and there is a cycle there, and obviously building more homes is is one answer um but you know, I grew up on an island, um Libby probably knows it well with her sailing connections, Mersey Island near Colchester. And and it's lovely to go back, but um, as as my 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 cousin who also grew up on the island and moved to London says to me, it's sometimes good to go back to remind you why you don't want to live there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you like you're you're Dick Whittington. I
1: I never knew that. I never knew you grew up. I don't know why I would have known, but I didn't know that about you, Patrick.
3: But but my parents and my mother's father emigrated from East London to Mersey. They wanted a better lifestyle as they were getting into middle age and and, uh, sometimes it just replenishes it it happens you you go to the city then you come back again when you want a different lifestyle
1: and there's one well there's two people from the Isle of Wight doing their best to try and make the Isle of Wight cool again Which I, mean, I assume that both of you are familiar with the work of Wet Leg.
3: We <laughs> uh, I need to. I need to.
1: They're very good. They're very. The good. Thing is, I
3: I associate the Isle of Wight. I was going to say, I associate the Isle of Wight with music. It it used to have a famous. Rock festival. Why well, yeah. still does? And I'd love to have a, yeah. a parallel universe where Jimi Hendrix has sort of settled in cows and set up a tea room or something.
1: <laughs> and uh, maybe that's yeah, maybe that's the start of it. Is it into a sort of permanent, year-long uh, music festival, maybe? Uh,
2: yes, I suppose so. <laughs> the, the, the what part of the problem with some of these areas where a lot of retired people settle down uh, is that they then don't like the noise and racket of the young turning yeah. up and then they
1: complain and
2: and that's that is something that i mean uh, we have latitude just across the field from us and i hear the bang 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 noises in in the night there the with a strange weird bang bang bats and i sort of i i welcome it you know and i if other people l- complain i say no 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 we should be pleased you know <laughs> yeah. even if they're only here for a weekend at least there's some young blood around
1: well, that's a good uh, that's a good point, because at least, you know, they're around and they're spending money and, you know, everyone was young once and all that. Uh, just finally, Libby, your column today um, uh, <laughs> poses a good co- What happens when we take down all the statues? Latvia are taking down lots of Soviet-era statues, but your point is that actually the statues are uh, at the risk of reopening this old uh, old argument. There's a, There's a good reason for keeping some statues.
2: Yes, I got I got completely riveted by the the pictures of some of the ones they're getting rid of in Latvia, especially the enormous head of Lenin, who looks like a granite version of Max Headroom, and apparently the locals didn't want it destroyed and, and they put it in a forest some years ago when the USSR collapsed. But I think it it is interesting to look around at the statues we have and at the resentment they sometimes cause you know, that it sort of flashes up like, the, like the, as the Colston thing did and say that actually, you know, the Prime Minister was for once right, perhaps we should say this once a day, uh, when he said, look, we've got a complex historical legacy all around us which reflects all of our history, and you can't just retrospectively change it. You know, so sometimes you have to sort of say, look at that old swine up there, you know. Oh, you know, I'm glad, glad he's not here now, and, and remember it. So, but I also, uh, the, the other thing I, I wanted to think about was how Nice it is that in the age of mass media, we're suddenly getting some fantastic statues of people that the public actually loved in a way they probably didn't. The sort of Duke of Wellington or Charles yeah, II, yeah, yeah. Um, you know. That we're getting pictures of. We're getting Amy Winehouse and and Eric Morecambe. I Eric mean, a good Vi- one. Victoria Wood and so on. You know, actually, actually, entertainer statues, and I love that. The fact that that's sort of springing up. And of course, there are other sort of heroes uh, suddenly appearing. Oliver Tambo is a lovely statue of Oliver Tambo right down in the park in Haringey. Um, uh, I, so I think it's statues evolve and life moves on, but you don't want to throw away all the old ones. Um, and uh, so it was really it was in praise of statues more than anything else.
3: Who would you like to see a statue of, Patrick? Well, I, I'm just reminded of what Boris Johnson said years ago when, when asked why he wanted to be Prime Minister, and he said because they don't put up statues to journalists. <laughs> um, they, I, I'm not sure whether there'll be a statue to Boris Johnson. There's, there's one seen, to Reuter. We look forward Reuter. to Taunton having a statue of you, Matt, one day. <laughs> yeah. I, know, I, I, do, I do
2: mention though that there's a there's a wonderful a wonderful statue of Reuter, you know, the the father of, of news coverage, uh, with wonderful granite side whiskers, was made by my friend Michael Black. So uh, some some journalism does get it little bits of statue.
1: And George Orwell isn't there an Orwell statue outside the
2: BBC? Have I imagine that? I think, think there is. I think there
1: is. Well, I'm not sure the BBC's uh, still going anymore. But anyway, for the time being. Uh, really, <laughs> no, there is. I've just looked it up. I've just looked it up. There is a statue of George Orwell. You know, I mean, he counts as many things. But we'll, we'll claim him as a journalist as <laughs> well. Libby Purvis and Patrick Kidd. Then, of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box to get yourself a subscription. Up next, we take a look at Prince Charles' finances.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. time for this. The Big Thing on Times
1: Radio. The future king is in his counting house counting all his money. But where does it come from? What do donors expect in return, and just how big a suitcase do you need to hold a million pounds in cash? We take a look at Prince Charles's finances this morning. The oldest heir to the throne for almost three hundred years, and increasingly taking on some of the big duties from the Queen, including just recently opening the state, uh, attending the state opening of Parliament. My Lords and Members of the House of Commons, Her Majesty's government's priority is to
4: grow and strengthen the economy. And help ease the cost of living for families.
1: Her but with all this increased responsibility comes increased scrutiny of how he operates, including the way money passes through his office and charities. Well, Gabriel Poggard is the Whitehall editor of the Sunday Times, who's been investigating all of this, and Prince Charles' finances keep ending up on the front page as a result. Uh, morning, Gabriel. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, where to start really um what's been, what was the trigger of your particular interest in Prince Charles and his finances? uh
4: you know what it all came about um by by accident as many of the best stories do um Henry Zeffman and I uh were looking into um the Tory party chairman Ben Elliot um and readers may recall last year that we did a story revealing that a Tory donor. Um, had paid Ben Elliott's company, his concierge business, quintessentially, and off the back of that, uh, booked to go on a private jet up to Charles's beloved estate in Scotland, Dumfries house, and have uh, dinner with the future king. Um, and off the back of this, um, we got a load of tips from people saying this sort of syndicate where the world's wealthy people um, can pay fixers or intermediaries and get in a room with HRH i mean you haven't even got a fraction of how big and institutionalized this all is and we ended up um i ended up spending a lot of time uh a um uh, basically pouring over hundreds of documents that showed that charles's closest confidant uh the notorious michael Fawcett, and uh, a load of fixers fixers had secured an honor for this saudi billionaire that's now under police investigation. But that was basically our way in. And since then, we've been marinating in the world of royal sleaze. And it, um, it, it, it makes politics look clean, to be frank.
1: And th- So let's, let's work through some of them, first of all. So the, the, uh, the, the Saudi tycoon Khalid bin Mahfouz gave £1.5 million to a charity associated with Prince Charles. And then subsequently got CBE. That's now being investigated by the police. Then uh, there was your revelation a week ago about this million pounds in a suitcase from Sheikh Hamad bin Jassim, former Prime Minister of Qatar, that's that's being in that the, the charity that was, uh, was was a total of three million pounds of all, uh, between twenty eleven and twenty fifteen. They're now saying, Oh, that was all in the past it was a long time ago. Half because a decade ago, no a less. A whole half a decade yes. ago. Yeah. And they definitely wouldn't take money in suitcases now. If it was a year if it was a year ago, they'd have said it was a tenth of a decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> um and now just yesterday, another revelation, this this time involving Lord Brownlow, who listeners will remember. Uh, was the guy who offered to pay for the gold wallpaper in number 10. More recently was being lined up to stomp up £150,000 to build a treehouse for Boris Johnson at Chequers. Not for Boris Johnson, for his son. Um, although, I, know, I mean, you never know. <laughs> Key distinction. You yeah. can't uh, rule it out. Explain what's going on with this story. How's Lord Brownlow now now moved from politics into the, the, the Prince Charles story? I mean, he's a fascinating man, Lord Brownlow. He, he,
4: he basically has this decade-long pattern of conduct of bailing out extremely powerful and influential but occasionally cash strapped people you mentioned the boris um his relationship with boris he also was the white knight that rescued david cameron's wife samantha's fashion company when it was hemorrhaging 500,000 pounds a year he took a 10 percent stake in that and then we revealed yesterday he'd also been bailing out prince charles i mean one of the weird one of the sort of interesting structural factors over here that people probably wouldn't assume is Charles doesn't have that much money. Um, it was actually in 2007 that he took out a £20 million loan in order to buy Dumfries' house. It was going to be bought by an American buyer. Charles said to his friend, the Marquis of Butte, I'll put together some money, let me save it for the nation. Since then, it's been the sort of headquarters of his philanthropic empire and his weekend estate. Uh, But he's basically struggled to pay the debt back ever since. He actually told an ITV documentary in 2012 that the debt kept him up at night. I don't think most people assume the future king um, spends his nights, um, you know, in in cold sweats thinking about the debt. But Brownlow is one of a number of people alongside the Saudi and uh, HBJ, the former, former Qatari PM, who he's turned to in order to bail out.
1: Um, his, his his actually quite financially troubling situation. Let's just focus on Dumfries' house for a moment. I think we've got a clip of... This is Prince Charles speaking to the BBC's Hidden Heritage in 2011 about why he wanted to take on that task of restoring Dumfries' house. I mean, I'd heard about this house, you
4: see, um, that there was difficulty with it and that they wanted to sell it and find uh, a solution, but unfortunately it, uh, it, didn't, it didn't happen. And I remember trying... Four years before it actually came up for sale as a problem. I tried to find a way of seeing if we could help sort it out or find somebody who might help, a, a
3: sponsor or a donor or whatever, but it was just
1: such an enormous task. An enormous task which has sort of got him into trouble. I suppose, is the starting point with this, is that Prince Charles wants to do good things. his hearts in the right place, maybe. You know, there's this house it needed restoring, uh... You know, we'll come on in a minute and talk about the the, the, the knock uh development as well. But he starts off with, like, this is a good thing to do. But like you said, he doesn't have any of his own money, so he ends up getting into bed with people that probably, when it's on the front of a national newspaper, it looks like it would be better if he hadn't done that. That's a
4: great analysis. I think another thing as well is that it's not only that he wants to do good things and has good intentions when it comes to those good things – um he doesn't respect the constitutional convention whereby even if he happens to have opinions he doesn't act on them i think this is probably the problem at the heart of it for two decades three decades charles has been um you know lobbying and advocating for causes close to his heart some of them perfectly laudable like restoring a dilapidated beautiful 18th century palladian manor others probably a little less laudable like lobbying for homeopathic treatments to be made available on the nhs But in a way, it kind of does a disservice to the debate to focus only on the weird and wacky things that he lobbies for. I mean, I I do think his Foundation for Integrated Health is probably the most notorious, but he's also lobbied against modern architecture, which he happens to dislike. But even if it's great stuff, it's the fact that he thinks he feels this entitlement to lobby and advocate on behalf of his causes. That's why he set up all these charities. I mean, it's not a normal thing. The Queen doesn't have, you know, charities through
1: which tens of millions pass and go on to cause as close no, to well. What she does heart. is she's the patron of existing charities, and which sort of bestows support upon them, but you're not involved in the, the fundraising and the day-to-day running of them.
4: Exactly. I, I, it's funny, like, in, in the newsroom, we often reflect on the word charity, but the moment that you introduce that word into a piece of journalism, people think, oh, well, it must be good then. I mean, the charity is just a legal structure that allows people to do things in the world, to pursue objectives that the charity deems to be charitable. But the
1: question is... Is it right for Charles to be intervening in the world in this way? And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Is that by pursuing good things, you know, he likes the environment, he likes, you know, building houses for communities. Well, Who could object to that? The point is that actually if you're observing the constitutional uh, um, uh, rule or the constitutional norm that you don't have an opinion on anything, then being for or against nice houses is not something that he should necessarily be sticking his oar into.
4: Yeah, I mean, during the um, we we only know this because of Guardian's years long legal case. But I mean, he lobbied New Labour ministers on any everything from army helicopters to the Patagonian toothfish. I mean, he basically just has lots of big opinions. Yeah, and he acts on them. And 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 and, and nowhere is his opinion about how the world ought to be more visible than in Dumfries. This is basically his. Charles HQ. I mean, Clarence House's is London based, but in terms of where he goes to be at peace with the world, where he feels like his values are exhibited to visitors and to all those who pass through, I mean, Dumfries house is the place. So you're right to identify that this is kind of the blank canvas on which Charles has attempted to make an indelible impact
1: and actually the fact that it's in scotland is a long way from westminster and you know the prying eyes of the media I means a lot of this stuff probably goes a bit under the under the radar so let's go back to the story that you had then yesterday cable. lord brownlow spent 1.7 million pounds bailing out priest charles failed eco village in knock roon in scotland this is professor alan dunlop he's a leading scottish architect who criticized the plan at the time he spoke to times radio earlier about why he thought the scheme failed
5: his heart was probably in the right place. I was first asked about Knockroon in 2010 and the creation of Scotland's Poundbury uh, and whether I thought it would stack up. An analysis of Poundbury uh, in Dorchester, which has a population of mostly professional classes, some 75,000 people, in comparison to Auchinleck and uh, Cumnock, former mining villages whose industries, textile and engineering industries have gone, has a population of 16,000. So from that point of view, I couldn't quite see how the thing could start, stack up right from the very start. I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about the architecture of it and the design and the overall look of it. But mm. just from a purely development point of view, I couldn't understand how you could possibly make it work.
1: Uh, so that was um, Alan Dunlop uh, speaking about Knock Room. Well, maybe one person who can try and stop that happening is Tobin Andre, former, uh, currently Deputy Editor of the Daily Mail. He's about to take over as the new Communications Secretary for the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall, as revealed by Roya Nicker, uh, the Royal Editor of the Sunday Times, just yesterday. Well, I caught up with Roya a little bit earlier on to discuss Prince Charles and all of his problems uh, and how focused he might be on taking on more responsibility from the Queen.
6: Well, I think we've been seeing that for the last few years. I mean, you know, the Prince of Wales and his household with the Duchess of Cornwall, you know, first and foremost, his his main public role is to support the monarch. And given that what we've seen over the last few years, you know, the Queen no longer travels overseas. Uh, so he's he stepped up his duties there for the very big sort of national moment sometimes now. Things like at the Cenotaph, the Queen no longer lays the national wreath. So Prince Charles is doing that. So yeah, it's a state opening of Parliament this year was opened by Charles and William. So we, we are seeing an ongoing trend in terms of the Prince of Wales stepping up more and more into that role of assuming a lot of her duties.
1: And with that increased responsibility and in sort of public profile, is coming more scrutiny uh, in terms of you know both what he does now but also what's happened in the past? Do you think, I mean, nobody enjoys scrutiny particularly, but how does he feel about that, the sort of increased... Uh, investigation, not least in the Sunday Times, about his finances, his foundations and charities, and so on. How does he feel about that level of scrutiny?
6: I doubt he welcomes it, <laughs> but at the same time, I, there's a big difference between the way the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall look at media coverage. You know, his press secretaries have always said to me he is very much focused on his public work and not on whether he's in favour or out of favour in the headlines. But that said, you know, he won't be immune to knowing that big these revelations that have come out that some probes by the Charity Commission now into some of the revelations will, you know, make people question more and more about the future of how his charities are run, how much of an arm's length he has from them. So he's he's not blind. He understands that people will be asking some serious questions and perhaps he needs to rethink his involvement with his charities.
1: And I suppose when you've had, you know, Prince Harry on one hand, Prince Andrew on another, making all the big headlines, it's not like this is the biggest thing <laughs> which has threatened the royal family in recent times. But as we get closer to the point of him assuming the role of, of monarch, I suppose there's going to be more and more focus on the way that he operates. And so do you think he sort of needs to sort of get his house in order a bit more uh, ahead of that?
6: I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, and I think he understands that. You know, when he turned 70 a few years ago, there was that documentary where he was asked, you know, a very probing question, will you, you know, will you stop writing to ministers? Will you stop meddling? And he said, of course, I understand the difference between that role, my future role, and my role now. And as you say, the closer he gets to that role, um, you know, with an ageing monarch who is now 96, the Prince of Wales really does need to, you know, when change of reign comes, he needs to be able to, to assume that role whiter than white almost, um, with, with no almost no sort of cause for criticism, because he's stepping into boots, the Queen's, one day, who really has, has, you know, conducted herself in an almost sort of, I don't know, she's never had, she's never been through any scandals like this. Yes, there have been scandals in her reign, of course, tons of controversy, but we've never seen anything like, you know, question marks raised over her involvement with with some of the charities or or question marks over money so i think he really does yeah you're right he needs to try and sort out that side of of his his role in his life so that when he does take the top job um things are much more straightforward and there'll be less scrutiny on that front
1: and how much of this if being fair to prince charles you know a lot of this is to do with chowter works you know trying to do good you know not all of it's successful uh, but, you know, starting out on the basic premise of, well, you know, building some houses here or helping out good causes there. And actually, in order to do that you know, th- th- and politicians find the same thing, uh, you end up sort of swimming with people who have got lots of money and maybe do or don't want something in return, and it's this sort of murky world of, you know, we want the royal, supports the royal family, want the royal family, with that you expect sort of bells and whistles and pomp and circumstance and all of that, uh, but um, that requires being paid for, and so, uh, you know, and it's where, I suppose it's where you draw the line, is to, you know, how close you get to those people who've got big checkbooks.
6: I think I would say two things on that. First of all, I would say absolutely the Prince of Wales's heart is in the right place when it comes to, you know, charitable works. Look at what he's done with the Prince's Trust and, and dozens of his charities, which do amazing things. I think the other thing I would say is perhaps he needs to keep a closer eye on who is managing those charities for him, and maybe reassess: does he really need to be raising all that much money? You know, Dumfries House, for example, his, his Palladian mansion up in Scotland, which is safe for the nation. It has, you know, the foundation has done a lot of good work around that. But did does, does he really need to be raising millions and millions of pounds for the restoration of, you know, some bridges? Or, I think he just needs to rethink about that because, you know, you're right. He does need to be very careful about who he's associated with. He is the future king after all, and and perhaps the role of his charitable work and the way in which he goes about fundraising perhaps could be slightly reassessed.
1: And and just sort of looking forwards, then, do you think that there are active uh, moves to sort of Tidy things up a bit, or has he not yet sort of got to that, that, that mental position of, you know, moving from the, you know, long, you know, he's waited for a long time, heir uh, to the throne, that actually maybe, you know, he's, he always talks about slimming down the, the monarchy, actually slimming down his operations would be quite a smart thing.
6: But well, I think we've already seen that. You know, his one of the closest people to him who was so deeply involved in, in the Prince's Foundation charity, Michael Fawcett, no longer works for the Prince of Wales. You know, that's a, a big move towards tidying things up. He's currently subject to, you know, in, involved in matters that the police are investigating. We saw it the weekend. There was a story saying that a. You know, the princess, One of the Prince's charities is advertising for a compliance uh, officer, which I think tells you that much more focus is now being looked at compliance of these organisations than perhaps had been before.
1: Uh, that was Roy Nika, the Sunday Times' royal correspondent, uh, giving us her assessment of that. Pa- uh, Gabriel Pogwin's still here, Wildhead of, of the Sunday Times, who's been doing a lot of the stories on this. I suppose I uh, should ask you Gabriel, what, what does Clarence House say about all this, apart from, I imagine, being annoyed that you keep phoning them on? A Friday afternoon and saying, oh, I've got another donor that I've got some questions about. Do they feel like uh, they they have questions to answer, that this is an issue? Are they trying to sort of clean things up a bit? Great question. They're certainly annoyed. Um,
4: you mentioned, uh, Roya mentioned a few moments ago, Michael Fawcett's resignation, I mean, there are five investigations. We
1: should explain Michael Fawcett was like the closest aide to Prince Charles.
4: Yeah, he'd been forced to resign twice from Clarence house. He came back again and again. I mean, he was the man that could make things happen for HRH. He was the person who gave effect to Charles's will in the world and off the back of our story last year, he quit, most presumed for the last time. A lot of One royal insider said to me he was extremely conspicuous by his absence at the Queen's recent Jubilee. People would usually go to him to get seats. He he wasn't even at the event. What did Clarence House say? Their steadfast position, in particular on the honours question, um, which is obviously so toxic for him because it's the literal police involved, is that he had no idea about any of it. Um, And often the Clarence House position is, these are questions for Charles's charities, which are independent organisations run by their trustees. So their basic position is that Charles knew nothing about the honours deal. He has... And and all uh, sort of legal and fiduciary responsibility falls on trustees. So basically, ask somebody else, but not us.
1: Well, there's some focus on that then. And There is now a police investigation into the suggestion of uh, an honour being given as a result of uh, donations. Norman Baker is a former uh, Liberal Democrat MP and former minister. He's author of uh, What the Royal Family Don't Want You to Know, and uh, Norman, uh, you, uh, Norman joins me now. Norman, you wrote to the police calling to them to look into exactly this.
5: Yes, indeed, Matt, because um, it seemed clear to me from the letter that was published in the Sunday Times and the Mail on Sunday, there was a prima facie evidence that an offence had been committed under the 1925 Honours Act, in that uh, an honour and indeed help with citizenship application had been offered explicitly, it seemed to me, in return for uh, money for Prince Charles's good causes, and the Metropolitan Police then subsequently wrote back to me and said, we are now beginning a criminal investigation and, as far as I'm aware, is continuing. And it's relevant that you bring that up because, as has just been said by Gabriel, the the, the response from Clarence household, which is, not me, Gov, I don't deal with these matters, Prince Charles says, it's done by some flunky somewhere, Uh, I sail above it all. Well, of course, that defence, to my mind, has been shot through by the fact that Prince Charles was caught, to use a vernacular, red-handed, receiving... Bags of money have been fought by Mason carriers uh, from the former Qatari prime minister, and now we know that um, uh, he's been uh, engaged in the same direct way with Lord Brownlow, uh, according to Sunday Times front page, in terms of money for Humphrey's house. It seems very clear that Prince Charles is intimately involved with these matters. I'm mean, interested, Norman,
1: in the in the fact that when Lord Brownlow was involved in paying or not paying for Boris Johnson's wallpaper. Westminster was alive with calls for investigations and resignations, and you know the Labour Party all over it, and Conservative critics of Boris Johnson all over it, and it, you know, the story was given endless legs by um, uh, by interventions by politicians. This time round, Gable does extraordinary work week after week in the Sunday Times, and is met by total silence from the Westminster yeah. establishment. And I know, I know you're, you're not an MP anymore, but were you, did you feel when you were an MP under pressure not to speak out about what the royal family were up to?
5: Well, I mean, there should be uh, voices in Parliament, not least of all, because the uh, donations in question, Lord Brownlow and the Qatari Prime Minister, were not included in, whole, in the court circular, and therefore a distinct attempt was made to hush them up very clearly. But look, I mean, 18 years I was in Parliament... I think I was the only member of Parliament to initiate a debate on anything to do with the royal family, which was I had to link it. So they make it very difficult for you. I had to link it back to the obscure Treasury paper in 1993 in order to get it past the House of Commons clause. But the wider point is this. MPs, many of whom are Republican in nature, I might show you, particularly in the Labour and Lib Dem groups, don't think it's a, a matter to be raised because they think it's either a vote loser or it's a distraction, all we painted as some sort of extremists now probably keep their head down. They say it's more important to deal with A, B, and C. That's where they are. Uh, actually, this is very important because this is about our constitution. This is about the future monarch in terms of Prince Charles. It's about how public money is spent. And uh, my view has always been that those who are receiving public money, whether it's MPs, councillors, people in the health service, or, or anybody else, network rail, well, they should be held publicly accountable. And the public accountability for Prince Charles and the Royal Family is woefully inadequate, not least of all, because Prince Charles lobbied the government to exclude the Royal Family as far as possible from the Freedom of Information Act. We should You talk
1: about how difficult it is even to mention the Royal Family. This was the other day, Keir Starmer mentioned the Queen during uh, PMQs, and Commons Speaker Lindsay Hoyle intervened.
5: Yes. Sorry, Premise. We normally would not, and quite rightly, mention the Royal
1: Family. Yeah. Even the very mention of the royal family is is, yeah. is found on. Never mind, you know, saying, well, I'm not sure if the heir to the throne should be receiving money in carrier bags.
5: Well, look, I mean, at any one time, the minimum percentage of the population that's Republican is 20%. It goes up to about 45%. It, it, it ebbs and flows between those two figures. But if you take 20% of the House of Commons, that's about 120, 130 MPs. How many actually say anything at all about the royal family? Well, Chris Bryant does occasionally... And that's it, uh, I'm afraid. And, you know, we're not representing... Uh, the, the MPs not representing the public properly by failing to address these issues. There are huge sums of money involved, as well as propriety issues. And uh, the MPs ought to be really far more involved. I'll be writing shortly to make Hillier, the chair of the Public Accounts Committee, because there are so many issues about Royal Finance that are to be looked at. But where's the Public Accounts Committee on this? Nowhere.
1: Yeah. Norman Baker, it's really good to speak to you. Final words to Gabriel pogrand uh, Where does the story go next? What? Well, if you do, you have more, more, of, more of these cases to wade through these hundreds of documents you're looking at. We do. Um,
4: I don't think uh, I don't know that you'll see anything uh, imminent, but there's there is more, and I think we just need to see where this Met investigation goes. I mean, there are investigations by the Met, the charity regulator, the Scottish charity regulator. I think there are about six of them right now. So we'll have to see if they are actually going to if these investigations will have bite, uh, or, or, or whether they'll sort of defer to the establishment as these things
1: um often turn out to be but um we'll see that's all we've got time for on this episode of the red box podcast don't forget you can listen to me live monday to friday 10 till 1 on times radio and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast and if you're feeling particularly nice why not wait and review us wherever
5: you get your podcast from